You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I just have to, I think, adjust this. Put this like that. Uh, put that on. Okay. Um, I think it's going. Yeah. Cool. When we're talking, am I allowed to take the mask off? Yeah, cover the microphone. There's uh, Mike oh, Sock yeah. over on the on the table there. And then I think there's some disinfecting products in there. Hi, my name is Blake, and I have just a quick note before we get started. But today, it's a little bit different than what you've gotten used to. You know, where I tell you to grab your headphones because this podcast is an immersive audio fantasy. This week, we're still headed to another abandoned place, the infamous Kings Park Psychiatric Center on Long Island, but this time with a friend. Jimmy Buff, the executive director of Radio Kingston, where I make this podcast. Today's episode isn't as immersive as they usually are. So if you don't have your headphones today, no problem. But if you do, I strongly encourage you to plop those suckers in your ears. Jimmy's got a great radio voice. The fortress is foreboding, intimidating, and sparks terror in my bones. The tingles I so rarely feel in these abandoned spaces begin to quake before I even start my approach up the long, curved driveway to the first of, quite literally, hundreds of structures that sit vacant on nearly 500 acres of land. Buildings 41 through 43 are connected, creating one of the more notable ruins on the property. As I make my final ascent, I can't help but think about Jimmy Buff, known to many as simply Buff, my boss at Radio Kingston WKNY. My name is Jimmy Buff. I'm the executive director at Radio Kingston. I also host an evening time program called Jimmy Buff Loves You. Uh, I've been to, uh, in radio for uh, next April. It'll be 37 years. I started very young. I had the great fortune to start in New York City at the top rated rock station in America at the time, WNEW FM. 1027 WNEW FM, the place where rock lives. Rock and roll that opens your eyes. 16 song music and I often describe that experience as learning radio. It's similar to learning the Bible from the people who wrote it. It was literally the first line of progressive FM DJs were my teachers. The finest rock and roll. 1027 WNEW FM, where rock lives. And then through a circuitous route through radio, I had the opportunity to help create Radio Kingston beginning back in 2017 as a community radio station.
Jimmy grew up near Kings Park. And he's hinted that he's got a treasure trove of stories about the infamous complex of decay and wonder. Growing up on Long Island as a child of the 60s, we did the great suburban migration from Queens when I was two years old. Arthur Levitt built the first suburban neighborhoods in Levittown. Five years ago, this was a vast checkerboard of potato farms on New York's Long Island. Today, a community of 60,000 persons living in 15,000 homes, all built by one firm. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. They were very affordable, prepackaged. They all looked identical. They were all on the same quarter acre or whatever plot. The idea that came to a man named Bill Levitt was this. Why not apply to the building of houses the same principles that have brought other American industries to their unexcelled peaks of efficiency and service? Why not mass produce the elements that go to make up a house just as the auto industry does with the parts that go into a new car? Bill Levitt had some other ideas. Put kitchen and bathroom back. People were encouraged to move from New York City out to then it was Nassau County, which to a lot of people felt like the wilds. You know, it was maybe 20 miles, 30 miles outside of Queens. And a lot of people took advantage of that, particularly in after World War II. A lot of service members took advantage of these great opportunities that the United States government made avail, uh, available to white service people. We in recent years have heard about the practice of redlining, where written into the code of places like Levittown, people of color were prevented from buying. But there was this flood of people who believed that inner cities and crime and all this other stuff was, you know, just something to be aboard. And so they moved increasingly farther and farther east on Long Island. This is what a gang fight looks like. Different towns call them by different names. In New York, it's a rumble. And in case you think this might be just a letting off of boyish steam, look here. These are weapons New York police have actually seized in such fights. They were made for killing... My family moved to a town in mid-Suffolk County called Hop Hog, which is center Long Island. Kings Park is actually almost literally on the North Shore. It's very close to bluffs that overlook the Long Island Sound. It's maybe eight miles from where I grew up. The whole shifting of populations from New York City further and further and further east. So that began after World War II, but it hit a, a, a fever pitch in the late 50s, early 60s. For as much fun as I've had guiding you through these spaces, hearing the history from someone who experienced it firsthand was evocative. I hope you enjoy the rest of my conversation with Jimmy Buff about the abandoned Kings Park Psychiatric Facility on Long Island, New York. by the mid-1970s when I was a teenager and first discovering, you know, car culture and riding in uh, older friends' cars. We were products of the time. Kings Park was a compelling place to go because even in the mid-1970s, it looked Dickensian, foreboding and dark. 
and it, it sort of engendered in our mind's eye rooms of torture equipment or experimental brain equipment, you know, and that's what we would riff on listening to rock and roll records and smoking weed or whatever was the vision of what we thought happened. went to an all-boy Franciscan-run Catholic high school about two miles from, from Kings Park called St. Anthony's. St. Anthony's high school students, we could find back their paths along what's called the Nisiquag River, and you could find your way onto the property that way. So it became a place where we would go and cut class and go hang out. And on occasion, we would be in some outskirt area of the property trying to dodge security, and you could hear people yelling out, just randomly yelling through the windows, the open windows. And our view of mental health then as teenagers in the 70s probably mirrored the type of treatment between now and then is probably the difference in how we view mental illness between now and then. I don't know what year Kings Park was built in. I know the Pilgrim State and Central Isip um, were built probably in the late 1930s when there was nothing but potato farms out there. Uh, around Kings Park, particularly, there's a, a small community called San Remo, which was all summer cottages for people from, the, from New York City. There was no actual year-round community. I think as those places began to spring up around these places, there were folks who thought that maybe having a psychiatric hospital in their midst wasn't something to be desired. And, you know, we always hear people worried about what, what's going to affect their property values or not. And my guess is, too, that it probably did affect property values, that a house near Kings Park would probably cost less than in a nicer neighborhood, maybe two towns away. Well, and now, I mean, even driving to Kings Park, I mean, anywhere on Long Island, you can see sort of the patterns of the economy and where the money was versus where it wasn't and where it is currently. And as I was driving there for the first time, I did notice the progression of upkept, nicer, quote unquote, buildings getting closer and closer to what Kings Park looks like now. The real thing that was so curious to me was this attempt at a beautification of Kings Park now that it's situated on public. It's a public park. So there are paths and people with their their dogs and their Lululemon pants. They're all walking about. And it's very, I don't want to say troubling, but it's there's something almost ironic about what it looks like now versus what it was when it started. And then, as we were just talking about, juxtaposed against the 50s and 60s. The first time you and I talked about this, you said that you were actually communicating with patients from the outside, talking to folks in through windows. So do you remember the first time that happened? Did you develop any relationships with people or was it just kind of one off? Yeah, no, it was not rooted in an honest intent or desire to have communication. It was more 
a curiosity. Some time ago, as you know, jobs were shipped overseas to improve the bottom line of big companies. Or worse, just teen angst at poking at something that seemed curious to us, and that's being kind to myself and my uh, friends at the time. My mother and father left me standing on a street corner, and so it was up to me to make it. And I had a job uh, working at a show. I said to a friend of mine recently, I said, you know, I said I was funnier 12, uh, 20 years ago. And he said, kind of makes you wonder why you thought that stuff was funny in the first place. And I, and that's exactly what I did, right? During that time, as I've said before, my home was the back of an old car. And I worked my night. People are afraid, like, oh, if I say that off-color thing or this, I'm going to get canceled. And that was where I, that I was framing that from. I was like, oh, that stuff was okay to laugh at 20. And he, and he just put it right in perfect perspective. Now, this was in the 50s. Things were a lot different then. And I'm convinced. And so I don't, you know, we didn't have the sensibility to think, oh, those are people who need connection. I don't think we had the courage to openly mock people, but we we sure did chuckle about it later amongst ourselves. All those, all the pejoratives for declining mental health or mental health issues that uh, we now choose not to use were applied liberally. Now, unemployment at that time very high. On the other hand, in the 50s, you could go into a corporation and ask for a job and get it. And after I'd worked 90 hours... You hear often said, well, those were different times. And I, I, I agree with that, uh, particularly around, we've talked about this, around songs. There are yep. songs that um, I don't play today. Even though I acknowledge that they were written at a different time, I choose not to play songs that have a certain effect on people. I just wanted you to know that people like me, old soldiers... Old people, we understand. And as old as I am, I would pick up my cane and defend you to my last breath. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. With the abandonment of that particular institution, which is huge, how do you think that it has impacted that specific community? I can imagine when they left, that was a big blow economically, culturally, politically, environmentally. Yeah, I imagine it took hundreds and hundreds of people to staff Kings Park. I don't know what the numbers actually would be. And I don't know how far, you know, what the commute was for that, that staff to come to Kings Park. Certainly, they must have gone out into the community surrounding the facility, maybe on break time or on their way home to shop, grocery shop. But uh, yeah, it's hard for me to estimate what that might have been like. But we know from here in our area, when there's an employer like IBM and they pull out, that there are all these jobs that are no longer there and the people are left behind to try and sort it out. And that's exactly what happened at Kings Park. Thousands of jobs gone overnight. I was just through Watertown, New York, on my way to Canada, and there's an army base there, Fort Drum, and their economy is built around having an army base there. And we've seen army bases close in years past in other parts of the country, and the devastation that has on the immediate community around them. I don't think that there are many people in Watertown voting to cut the military budget. And then you see how, you know, you see how relational people's experiences are to their belief system at that point. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that it had to have had an effect on, on the community around Kings Park.
And now my relationship with it is that I go back to Long Island. My father still lives farther out east on Long Island, and I'm an avid runner and have been for a long, long time. And I don't know, 30 years or maybe longer, there was the creation of some trails on Long Island. Greenbelt trails, they're called. One is farther west in Suffolk County, and it runs from a town called Cold Spring Harbor to Massapequa on the south shore. It's maybe 22 miles long. And then there's a trail that starts at Sunken Meadow State Park, which is adjacent to Kings Park, to the, the grounds that the hospital was on. And it snakes its way through suburban Long Island somehow for 30 miles and ends up on the south shore of Long Island in Heckscher State Park. And as a avid trail runner here in the Catskill Mountains, I suddenly got struck with the urge about 10 years ago to go run the entire trail, the belt, the width of Long Island. It doesn't have hills. It doesn't have the technical challenges that we do here. And if you can tune out the constant low hum of traffic, you can almost believe you're somewhere else. But I had been there a bunch to start that trail run at Sunken Meadow State Park, and it takes you through the grounds of Kings Park. It skirts the grounds of the property. And those things, those memories that we were talking about a few minutes ago came flooding back. And I was appropriately appalled at myself at some of the things that that we did there as teenagers. When I first started going to these spaces and poking about and being really curious about everything, the thing that came up for me the most was just this idea that there are so many ghosts inside of these walls that wander about. And I'm not talking about, you know, ethereal paranormal stuff. I'm talking about literal stories that, for some reason, feel trapped in a lot of these spaces. The reason I keep going back is because I feel like I have this responsibility to go keep prying away at the walls to let those stories come out, even if I don't know what they actually are. It just feels like a way of respecting a lot of the economic, cultural, social, environmental disaster that has happened because these spaces have closed. You know, when we first connected on this topic of abandoned spaces, I saw how excited it made you. And I just wonder what it is for you about these spaces that sort of piques your interest. Yeah, and and they do. You know, one of my earliest childhood memories after we moved to Long Island is exploring an abandoned farmhouse with my father near to where we grew up. In that space now is the Suffolk County office building. It's a 14-story office building in Hophog, New York. But at that time, as the suburbs were moving farther and farther east, there were still wide-open tracts of land, potato farms and things like that. And there was something so compelling to me about the fact that this place had once held life, held a family, and felt so very empty at that moment. And I have always been attracted to those places because there is a touchstone to nostalgia about my own past, perhaps. We went, again, on this recent trip to Canada, we went through a small town where, when I was first dating my wife, there had been a wreck of a gorgeous Gothic house. Somewhere we have the pictures of us exploring it. It was weird because we looked in the back window and there was a table that had been set long ago and was still sitting there with, like, dishes and candles on it. Or maybe it was just some local kids who liked to hang out there. They had set it up that way. And it's gone now. It's replaced by some super church tabernacle. And we were just both so saddened by that. And I think the attraction relates to nostalgia for a past that for a long time I was trying to reconcile. My childhood, whatever challenges I faced growing up, 
Yet at the same time, there is a, a mystical aspect, a romantic aspect. And hearing you describe wanting to let those stories out, yeah, understanding that there were stories. There were places, there were lives that had happened in those spots. You know, you bring up a good point about the romanticism of it, too. When I first started this work, I was doing a lot of research on the feeling that I had when I would go to these spaces. The feeling of, in, my, in the pit of my stomach that happened when I was a kid, when I would go to the abandoned dairy farm down the hill from my house. What that sensation was, I couldn't put a name on it. And this one word came up that... I don't think is an unofficial King's English Oxford Dictionary word. The word is animoia, and it's a term that describes the sensation of longing for a past that doesn't actually belong to oneself. And that's an amazing thing is to have nostalgia for a past that perhaps didn't exist. My brothers and my late sister and I would sometimes trade stories about growing up, and I would have no memory of what was being shared by one of my siblings, and it was vivid to them. And a fellow named James Hillman, the terrific psychologist, wrote that nostalgia is like a vacation for the mind. Yes, it is. It's so funny to think about vacationing in one's mind because I think that we're living in a time right now where that is possibly the safest place for a lot of people. I feel like in the context of the country right now, these places really represent a lot of touch points where we've gone wrong as a society. Yeah, we, what comes to mind is there's a, a famous scene from the HBO series The Newsroom with Jeff Daniels. And in the opening scene, he's on a panel and he's asked about what makes America great. And he says, it's not great. And everyone pauses. And I don't know if you know the scene I'm talking about where he talks about we used to do things in this country. And then he starts to wax nostalgic about an American past that was only true for white males. <laughs> and all of my liberal friends love sharing that out. As, and I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't true for everybody. And I think uh, there's this feeling in the country right now where people feel like something's being taken from them, a way of life that never actually existed for them and certainly didn't exist for the historically excluded. You're taking my statues from me and you're taking this from me and somehow it feels like a theft of memory or nostalgia when it really didn't exist that way. And yeah, it's a time, we're in a time for sure. Jimmy, so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me to have this chat. It's a blast for me, especially to talk to people who kind of understand the depths of why these places just feel so important right now. Yeah, and, and I hope I'm not the only person texting you pictures of some rundown husk of a place that you never actually <laughs> want to go to, but we're like, oh, this will work. And you're like, no, nah, I don't know if that one will work. But, you know, I imagine that. <laughs> it's, it's funny how you say that because once I started pushing this work out into the world, just just like anything, people want to be involved and they're interested because it is, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, picture of an old shed in someone's backyard that's crumbling. <laughs> totally. But there might be a story there. You never know. Absolutely. If you're just tuning in for the first time, Welcome to the first season of Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. Join me as I take you on immersive sonic journeys, recounting my expeditions of abandoned spaces across the United States, which I transform into fantastical audio experiences that allow you, dear listener, to dive into my imagination with me, or maybe 
inspire you to go out and use your own. Next time, sitting at the front of the property where the Sunset Drive-In Theater used to sit, an abandoned house that's been mysteriously transformed into a monument for climate activist Greta Thunberg. I shit you not. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could do me a solid, please rate and review this season so I can keep feeling the fantasy with you. I know that you hear this over and over again with podcasts, but it's true, and the data proves it. It really helps. And so does sharing it with your friends and family, or, I don't know, a stranger on the subway. And tell them I said hey. Also, if you like to read or enjoy amateur photography, you can catch up on more of my adventures at allamericanruins.com or follow me on Instagram at allamericanruins. Abandoned, the All American Ruins podcast is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Blake File, with studio space courtesy of Radio Kingston, WKNY, AM 1490, FM 1079 in Kingston, New York. Special thanks to Ida Hakala and Manuel Bloss for the mentorship and encouragement, to you, the listener, for taking the time to explore these abandoned spaces with me, and to Jimmy Buff for championing the All-American Ruins multiverse and chatting with me today. Thanks, Jimmy.